sex in the Bible may be even a little more than you wanted to know. And of course, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of sex discussed in the Bible, so we're going to obviously have to do some of the ancient world as well. Okay, as usual, I want to start with a map because, as we know, I find maps very interesting just to give us some sort of framework and idea of where we are in the ancient world, not that the map really matters that much to this discussion. All right, so this is a quotation from Proverbs. Those who spare their words truly the, those who spare their words are truly knowledgeable and those who are discreet are intelligent even fools keeping silent are considered wise that's from proverbs it's a bad translation but it was the best slide i could get of it that's a concept within proverbs and it really shows to a great extent what the bible thinks about many things the bible is among other things discreet and when it talks about sex and sexuality, it is on some levels modest, on some levels discreet, on most levels very, very different than what we have in the rest of the ancient world. You see, you don't get that in the Bible. I refuse to describe the slides so children look. This is a drinking cup. <laughs> it is. It's a kylex. Uh, and you would use this at a party and you would lift it up to drink. And it's frequently, the kylexes are frequently decorated with humorous and or erotic scenes on the outside and even on the inside of many of them. This is the other side. This is just a siren. You can see the eye in the center. They, frequently they have two eyes, so when you hold the kylix up, when you're drinking from it, it it's, you're, you've made, made in effect a mask. Isn't that a funny joke for the person on the other side, for the person looking at you? And this one, I could not get a picture of it, but this one also, it's in the Museum of Fine Arts in, Bro in Boston, you saw on the other slide. Um, it has on the handles uh, pictures of or images of uh, two dogs uh, relieving themselves. So it's got two satyrs enjoying themselves. It has two dogs relieving themselves and a flying siren. So it has all sorts of images that, you know, are to make you laugh, are to be enjoyable. This is a very, very small obelisk, it's called. It's a oil pitcher. You would use it to pour oil on yourself, which is in effect the, uh, the soap or the washing of Ancient Greece, you would pour uh, oil on yourself and then you would take a sturgeon, like a little scraper, and scrape the oil off. And that's the most common way that you would clean yourself. And it's used for, uh, in the home of course, but in the gymnasium with the athletes and the like. And uh, one of the professors that I had many, many years ago used to refer to this one as satyrs doing dumb things. <laughs> This is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It is really very small, it's about this big. And as you can see, there's Greek around it. We've got the name of the, um, the artist, but then you've got the three names of the satyrs. One is called the masturbator, one is called the retracted foreskin, and one is called enjoying it up. <laughs> okay. Because they had a sense of humor with it. 
right? It, the eroticism is erotic and it's fun and it's funny, and that works for them, that's all right. Okay? You don't get that same sort of idea in the biblical text. Right? Two quotations about uh, masturbation in the biblical text. Genesis chapter 38, verse 9, which we have gone over in any number of contexts in this month together. But Onan, knowing that his seed would not count as his, let it go to waste whenever he joined with his brother's wife, so as not to provide offspring for his brother. This comes from the story of Judah and Tamar and the Leveret marriage, where Onan is required to provide a son in the stead of his now dead brother to his brother's widow. Right? Uh, what he did was displeasing to the Lord, and he, meaning the Lord, took his life also. Right? Because you are not supposed to let your seed go to waste, according to the Bible. And then the only other uh, biblical um, quotation dealing with this is, when a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and remain unclean until evening. All cloth or leather on which semen falls shall be washed in water and remain unclean until evening. Now, the meaning of unclean is a discussion for another time. It's, it's a taboo, right? but it's a taboo for a reason. It's not a taboo because it's actually thought of as unclean. It's a waste of a human life, and therefore it needs to be sanctified, and you need to be sanctified because you, in effect, wasted a, a, the potentiality of a human life. Right? So it's not that... It's, it is a taboo, but it's a different taboo than we want to associate with it. But that's really as far as the Bible goes in discussing masturbation, where you know, the Greek art, I wouldn't say is full of it, but it's not not full of it. Right? As close as the Bible gets to um, saucy, shall we say, descriptions of sex is in Song of Songs. Song of Songs is poetry, it's not narrative. We're going to get to Song of Songs a little bit later in our discussion. Uh, but this is as, I, I was trying to think of what to me is the sauciest part of the biblical text in its erotic descriptions, and really Song of Songs is as erotic as it gets in that way. So I just took two verses here. Scarcely I had passed them. When I found the one I love, I felt I held fast, I held him fast. I would not let him go till I brought him to my mother's house, to the chamber of she who conceived me. Who was she that comes up from the desert, leaning upon her beloved? Under the apple tree I roused you. It was there your mother conceived you. There she who bore you conceived you. So that's not saucy for a New York girl. I mean, I don't know if it's saucy for a California crowd. But that's really as close as you get to any sort of beauty of the eroticism within the biblical text. Now, not so in the surrounding cultures. We don't have that same sort of modesty. So now we start a short little journey into some, what might be considered in other contexts, inappropriate pictures. So there's our first one. That's from a private collection, and it is clear what's happening. What's not clear is what the purpose of this little plaque was. It is a mold-made plaque. Are you actually recording the pictures? Okay, good. <laughs> just fine, but just not because the pictures, I mean, this is in a private collection. Okay, thank you. It is a mold-made plaque. 
And when you have something that is mold-made, you know that they're making more than one copy of it. You know that they're in some way mass-producing it. Well, what for? We don't know. I call them souvenirs just because I've got a strange sense of humor, not because I mean anything by that, but we don't know what the context for these are. Okay? And it's not like this is the only one that you would find in the ancient world. This one uh, and the next one are both in the collection of the Israel Museum. This one, is, which is quite interesting, is, and there are any number of these types. You have the uh, woman, come on, pointer. The woman has a straw into the beer jug, as you had in the other one. I don't know if you, you noticed that. Um, and this, this man has a, a blossom-shaped cup to his lips, and that's interpreted in both instances, that's interpreted as a representation of oral sex. So you have both uh, genital sex and oral sex, I'm sorry if I'm shocking anybody, uh, represented in the same imagery. Again, what, what it is it for, we don't know, but they are not uncommon. Right. Again, this one is in the Israel Museum. This was actually in the newspaper in the Times of Israel um, in January of 2014, and it caused quite a salacious scandal because you know it wasn't you know whatever the, the nude pages are in England. But again, mold made. These are these are. I wouldn't say they're common, but they're not uncommon, and no one knows what they're for. You have, of course, in uh, this, is, this is Roman, it's beautiful, it's in the Metropolitan Museum. It's you know, about yay big in a cameo glass. Uh, and th it's just spectacularly uh, delicate. You have many, many images in classical, uh, antiqu classical antiquities, classical art and material culture that have erotic images. It seems to be a very common, or let's do it this way, a not uncommon decoration motif in the ancient world. Whether you're not, you're talking about the daily life glasses. I mean, you had to obviously have to be wealthy to own a glass like this, or the inside of one of those kylixes that I spoke of before. These are not uncommon to find within the ancient world, though we find nothing similar in the land even that we call biblical Israel, let alone the peoples that we might want to be biblical Israel. And this, I think, is the last one that I have of this sort of image. And again, this is in the, um, the MMA, the Mu um, Metropolitan Museum of Art. The one before I was in the Getty Villa, I took that picture the first Monday that I was here when I went to the Getty. Um, but this is an image of love, an image of eroticism, an, an image of a couple being together in a pleasant and nice way. This is really rather interesting. This is a, a mummy and from Hellenistic Egypt and a curse text. Some of us have looked at some curse texts with me on the Wednesday afternoon series, a curse text was found rolled up, a Greek, cur a Greek curse text, I can say that, rolled up within the mouth of this mummy. Uh, and it says, I, Lord Demon, attract, inflame, 
destroy, burn, cause her to swoon from love as she is being burnt and inflamed. Goad the tortured soul, the heart of Kay, until she leaps forth and comes to me out of passion and love. In this very hour, immediately, immediately, quickly, quickly, do not allow her herself to think of her own husband, her child, drink food, but let her come melting for passion and love and intercourse, especially yearning for the intercourse of me. Okay, clearly what you have here is a man who wants to be involved with a married woman who has a family. And he wants this yearning, burning, passionate sex with this woman. You don't get things like that in the Bible. Can you imagine the Bible saying, and Adam really, re you know, I don't even want to go into what I, can, <laughs> what I can say, but you can come up with it in your mind. And that would be really shocking within the biblical text. Our text seems to be much more demure, right? Much more sanitized, much more what we might now call Victorian. Okay, now some of us saw this picture, uh, this slide, earlier in some of our discussions. Does anybody remember what it is? We're, we're giving a beginning test. Snap. It's one of the, snap. It's one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It is the Genesis Apocryphon. Very good. And we looked at the Genesis Apocryphon, columns 19 and 20, in some of our talks, when we were looking at the discussion of Abraham and Sarah, when Abraham goes, in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham goes into Egypt because there's a famine in the land, and Abraham, according to the Bible, says to Sarah, please say that you are my sister so that it may go well by me. And this is all upsetting to all of us. This is a review for those of us who remember and new teaching for those of us who missed one of the lectures. And Abraham um, tells Sarah to lie so that his sorry tuchus will be saved and he won't be killed by Pharaoh because he's afraid that if Pharaoh sees how beautiful she is, Pharaoh will kill him, right? Because Pharaoh will desire her as a wife. Okay? So the Genesis Apocryphon, which is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the original uh, hoard, shall we say, of scrolls in cave one, tells the story of Abraham receiving a dream from God. So in effect, God is telling him to tell Sarah, but God is telling him to ask Sarah and therefore telling Sarah to say that she is his sister. So it exonerates Abraham so that Abraham isn't asking Sarah to commit adultery. Okay. So that's what we've discussed about this scroll before, and this is another part of the text. The part I'm going to look at now is the beginning part. Before the text was called the Genesis Apocryphon, it had been called the Lemach Scroll, because as you can see, it was very, very hard. I'm pointing to the screen because you can see, right? Mm. <laughs> I always do that. It's a terrible, it's a terrible thing. Right? As you can see, it's a very... Um, delicate and, and uh, destroyed. It's a, the, the text is not, not well preserved. There I'm going. Um, 
text. And the beginning of the text, we have a discussion of Lemech. We don't know much about Lemech in the Bible. Right? We get a little poem by him in the very beginning of the Bible. But the Genesis Apocryphon, which had originally been called the Lemech Scroll, right, starts uh, with this. Behold, I thought what then within my heart that conception was due to the watchers and the holy ones and the giants, and my heart was troubled within me because of this child. Lemuch doesn't believe that his wife, uh, who was pregnant, was pregnant with his child. Uh, then Badenosh, my wife, spoke with me with much heat and said, O oh my brother, my lord, remember my pleasure, the lying together and my soul within its body, and I tell you all things truthful. So she's asking him to remember their night of passion. Can you imagine that in the Bible? Right? That doesn't happen in the Bible. Right? My heart was greatly troubled within me when Bat Enosh, uh, my wife, saw that my countenance has changed. She mastered her anger and spoke to me saying, oh my Lord, my brother, remember my pleasure. I swear to you by the Holy Great One, the King of the heavens, that the seed is yours and the conception is from you. Right? Bat Enosh is pregnant. Lemoth doesn't think it's his. He confronts her and she says, wait a second, remember that great night of sex? How that's when I got pregnant. It was yours. You gotta remember my heat, my passion. That's it's your baby. Right? So already you have in the earliest period of what we might now call Midrash, the earliest texts that reference the Hebrew Bible, let alone are the Hebrew Bible, and understanding that the text is a little modest and we can have other stories that go along with it. But in the Bible itself, right, uh, this, is, this is the discussion that you have when you're having sex with a whore. Right? When Judah saw her, he took her for a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. What, she asked, will you pay me for sleeping with me? He replied, I will send a kid for my flock. But, but she said, you must leave a pledge until you have sent it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your seal, your cord, and the staff that's with you that you carry. Okay, we've discussed this any number of times this month. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she conceived by him. Big difference, right, with he slept with her and she conceived to what we had before. So even when you're having sex with a prostitute, you're not getting any of this flowery or emotive or erotic or salacious description. Because the point of the story isn't the eroticism. The point of the story is what's happening in this text, right? The point of the story of Judah and Tamar is not the act of sex, the point of the story of Judah and Tamar is the lineage that results from it. And so it's unidirectional. And it doesn't bother with all the different sort of details that we might find enjoyable in a novel were we to have it today. This is a, I love this, it's a terracotta, it's in the Louvre, a terracotta model of a sandal, right, um, that, um, has uh, a word imprinted on the bottom. And the word translates out as follow me. And it was, it was thought that prostitutes would wear shoes like this and then walk in the dirt and then you get a little, a little path, follow the yellow brick road. 
and they have them they have them in all sorts of ways. Clement of Alexandria, who was later canonized by the Catholic Church, his dates are 150 to 215 CE, takes a great um, dislike to these sorts of things. And he wrote in one of his books, many women even have figures of erotic postures engraved on the soles of their sandals so that they can leave an impression of their obscene thoughts on the ground as they walk along. Unfortunately, I have no slides of the obscene impressions on, on the ground. The next slide is just a, you know, a, a better, I mean, it, it gives you an image of both, of both pieces. I thought that the, you know, one slide wasn't enough for us. Okay. Yeah, are you asking a question? Yeah. Okay. Is there any indication from your studies that the reason the Bible had to downplay frivolous sex and spilling of seed was because there was so much of it happening? No, that, I mean, that's a good question. The question was, is there any indication that there's so much frivolous sex <laughs> going on in the ancient world that the Bible has to downplay it or degrade it? No, I think that it's, for there are two things going on. I think that it's discussed in Song of Songs, and we'll get to that. It's discussed in the poetry, and that's fine. The narrative has a, has a direction. And the narrative is very terse, and it has to get where it's going. And the sort of the flowery aspect of it isn't important for the storyline and isn't important for the text. The Bible has a variety of attitudes toward sex and nudity. You know, we'll talk about that a little bit as we move along. But as you've heard me say any number of times, and I'll say it again later today, um, wearing a bathing suit in shul is different than wearing a bathing suit on the beach. So when you're cooking brunch, if you're dressed up as if you were going to the APAC dinner in heels and a fancy dress, some of us might titter. Well, I have a quick question then. But the, but the prohibition against spilling your seed, and if you do, you've got to wash okay. your clothes. No, okay, the pro prohibition about spilling your seed, I should have made that clear, thank you, um, has to do with the fact that in the ancient world and in the pre-modern world, and I've said this at some of the talks before, it, the understanding is the entire human is in the seed, right? Just like the entire apple is in, or in the apple tree, or the avocado tree, the entire avocado tree is in the avocado, right? And therefore, if you waste the avocado, you've wasted the whole tree. So it has more to do with that. Okay. Um, Two quotations from Leviticus. The priest shall dress in a linen raiment with linen breeches next to his body, and he shall take up the ashes which are in the fire, blah, blah, blah. The point is that the priest has to wear uh, leather breeches, not uh, linen breeches. He shall be dressed in sacral linen tunic with linen breeches next to his flesh and be girt with linen sash, etc. We don't, the details are important, we don't do ritual nudity. We don't do ritual nudity. When we approach God, when we approach our rituals, we are dressed appropriately. Right? Still today, in shuls, the majority of people will wear, even here where you're very casual, even in Israel where they're very casual, much less so in New York where we're not as casual, you still wear a different outfit to shul than you wear if you're going somewhere else, right? The beach or whatever, you're not wearing as uh, risque, shall we say, clothing to shul. Or if you do, people will still think questions about it. 
we don't do ritual nudity, but the ancients do ritual nudity. Okay? I've got many, many pictures of this. This is, I've, I've promised many of you this picture. This is the image that when I took an actual slide of it with a film with camera, you know, a camera with film, I'm tired, I said that backwards, a camera with film, and then I went to have it developed. They, they would not mount the slide for me. No pun intended with that mounting, sorry. Because, and I was told if I brought pictures like that again, they would not develop any more film for me. This is in the Brooklyn Museum of Art. Okay, the symplegmia, right, is a very, very fancy word for sexually entwined couple. And they use the, that's, it's labeled thus because it's nicer to say, but it, we don't know what it's for. Okay? It is labeled with all sorts, I, I brought you many slides of it because it's just so much fun. We refer to it in the trade, excuse me, as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> and I brought you all sorts of images. It is one woman and many men. Okay? Um, that's, <laughs> that, that's from my iPod. Because every time I go there, I just have to take another picture of it because, you know, who knows? We don't know what it was for. It's about this big. It's pretty big. It's pretty big. Right? And it's clear what it is. But we don't know what it's for at all. So you get labelings like clearly a ritual object. When you see that in a museum, clearly for ritual purpose, Translate as, we don't know. Okay. If it says a ritual purpose that is X, Y, and Z, or two candlesticks used for the ritual of Sabbath lights, fine. You know, a menorah used for the ritual of, fine. Remember the, the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy? Yeah. Right? Clearly a ritual purpose. L'chaim. <laughs> I can't wait to get back to <laughs> New York liquids. Okay, so this is also, this is the British Museum, this is also an unusual image. Um, and this woman is, she's, she's got a seed basket and she's spray, um, sowing seeds. Uh, but at the same time, what she seems to be growing are penises. Now, there's something truly odd about a woman sprinkling seeds, growing penises. There's some sort of role reversal here. But <laughs> the label in the British Museum says that this scene may have references to one of the mythic and mystical ceremonies of, right? So in other words, we don't know. We don't have a clue, but here you have something that's really odd. Right? It could just as easily be a reference to one of the plays that we don't have. Right? We have, there are, we know that the, the playwrights wrote, you know, hundreds of plays, and we might have 19 of them. I think we have 19 Sophoclean plays. We know that he wrote 107. Right? And we don't know what the other were, what, they, what they're about. This could be a scene from the most famous play, who knows? 
but it's labeled as, you know, probably a ritual context. Regardless, the sex and sexuality and the eroticism are part, more part of the daily lives that we even have today. Now, the marriage of the gods and goddesses also are an aspect of sex and sexual nudity. And we talked about some of this on our first night together, the so-called herosgamos, the sacred marriage of a male and a female god right, to enable and continue fertility in the world, both fertility of the land, fertility of the people, fertility of the animals, and the world as it continues. And this is Egyptian, uh, where the, the Nile god or the earth god is Geb, not the name, and the sky god that uh, is the Ark of Heaven, is Nut, uh, that's her name, she is female, he is male. In Egypt it is the opposite of it, where, of how it is in other places, usually it's Mother Earth and the sky is the male god. In Egypt because the Nile inundates and the earth is fertilized from the land, right, you get the male uh, and the earth. Right? So that's the Heroes Gamos in Egypt, and here's another picture of it, a little bit more, shall we say, direct in how it is being presented. This comes from a sarcophagus panel. Right? Um, and we looked at this at the, at, on our first uh, night together. This is the Heroes Gamos of Zeus and Hera. Right? The coupling of uh, Hera and Zeus provide fertility and continuity within all of Greece. You also have the stories of the love affairs of the gods. So this is Leda and the Swan, right? Many of you might be familiar with that. Um, it's in Venice. And Leda is kissing the swan. The swan, of course, is Zeus, who took the image of a swan to seduce Leda. And here, of course, is another. This is also in the Louvre. Um, another image, this comes from a vase, and it's, I think it's kind of cute because she's like grasping the head of the swan to really kiss it well, right? And the swan, of course, is Zeus. And of course, the, uh, the image of Europa and the bull, right? Which again is Zeus as the bull coupling with Europa. We don't have these associations within our text or within our tradition because we now have a strict understanding of monotheism. But if you look carefully within the Bible, there are many hints to other approaches. So you have in the, in the chapter 8 of Proverbs, you have wisdom speaking. Right? Chochmah is speaking, and we know that Chochmah Bina, right? These are feminine attributes, right? Chochmah is the personification of wisdom, and she is a woman. And I just took a, you know, a piece of it, but the entire chapter is Chochmah speaking, right? Wisdom speaking, understanding, raising her voice. I walk on the way of the righteous, on the paths of justice. I endow those who love me with substance. I will fill their treasuries. The Lord created me at the beginning of his course, as the first of his works of old. Now, don't worry about the fact that this is a very, very different story of creation than you're familiar with in your stories of creation. One of the really fun assignments to do with 
um, undergraduates and high school students, and even sometimes with middle schoolers, is to take the different stories of creation in the Bible, this is one of them, and have them write the biblical story of creation not using chapters one and two of Genesis, because there are at least half a dozen others in the Bible, and you get a very, very different understanding of creation. Um, so God created wisdom at the beginning of the creations. There was still no deep when I was brought forth, no springs rich in water, before the foundation of the mountains were sunk, before the hills I was born. He had not yet made the earth and the fields, or the world's first clumps of clay. I was there when he set the heavens into place. Now here specifically, many of us know that I go back and forth when I talk about God, male and female, but this is very specific. Here God is male, because wisdom is female, right? And it's the coupling, right? Um, when he fixed the horizons upon the deep, when he made the heavens above firm and the foundations of the deep gush forth, when he assigned the sea its limits so that the waters never transgress his command, when he fixed the foundations of the earth, I was with him as a confidant, as a source of delight every day, rejoicing before him at all times, rejoicing in his inhabited world, finding delight with mankind. Now sons, listen to me, happy are those who keep my ways, heed discipline and become wise, do not spurn it, happy is the man who listens to me coming early, blah, 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 it doesn't matter. But what you have here is a coupling of God and wisdom. We don't think of that. Yes, it's poetry, and yes, we now have strict monotheism, and that does, it, it works against what we understand, but there seems to be, at least within the ancient world to some extent, an understanding of some sort of um, coupling of God, God with a consort of some, in some way. Okay, so this is Kuntelet Arjud, which is in the Sinai, right, here's the Sinai Peninsula, here's Kuntelet Arjud. It's a late 9th, early 8th century site in the northeast part of the Sinai Peninsula. It is considered a crossroads. It was probably a military uh, garrison or installment. And they found there two, the fragments of two different pithoi. Pithoi's are large storage jugs. And this is a fragment about which I speak at the moment. Okay? I know you can barely see it, which is why I brought you this, which is the line drawing of that fragment. You can sort of navigate, you can sort of, right, see the images. And we discussed this, I think, last Tuesday night. Um, but the, you have an inscription here uh, that says, in part, I have blessed you by Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah. Okay, which again is showing that at least in some of the popular culture, there was an understanding of God, our God, with some sort of consort element, right? These, this is not an image of a naked deity by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I know that, I'm running out of battery, good, good it's the last day. Right? I know that you might think that we've got a naked element here, but we don't. These are, um, excuse me, uh, animal skins 
and an animal skin um, garment and cloak that the god is wearing, and this is the tail of the animal that is hanging down. Right? There are all sorts of ways of identifying that, but that's clear, so don't get the wrong idea, because you would never, ever, ever have a god with a body part in that direction. Right? Because it's anything but the direction that the, that, that the god's body part should be. Because either it is demurely flaccid, or it is amazingly, potently powerful. But it's never flopping in the wind, you'll excuse me. Right? This, right? But that's what, when you look at it in the context of what I'm talking about, that's the first thing you're thinking of. Right? But again, this is, you know, it, it's clearly an outpost. It's not necessarily part of the main drag and the main understanding of the, the people and of Israelite religion, but it's clear what it is because it's labeled. Now, in, don't you love it? Um, okay, yes, yet again, another technical term, which means bronze thing with bells on it. Okay, usually associated with the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church has these staves that have bronze images with bells that you walk, up, that you walk around with, and that's a Catholic term for this um, religious object that then gets brought into art history. Right? So this, this functioned as a wind chime, it's decorated with a, what they call a winged lion phallus, right? Because it, it, he does have lion feet and a lion tail. And it's thought to provide magical protection against evil and to bring good luck to the household. Because it is the power of the naked male, right? The strongly virile, potent naked male Right? that can offer that type of protection. So we have many of them. I'm just, I mean, it's like, hello. Nice to meet you. I mean, I just love the little hand. It's, like, it's almost as if he's saluting. And of course, my ever favorite one. Wow. It's like, hello. Right? And, Again, this is to show, I mean, he's sticking out his tongue. He's basically saying, go away, all you evil spirits, right? He is doing it in a humorous way, but also in a powerful way. We don't deal with this sort of nudity. We don't deal with it with the individuals. We don't deal with it with the gods, right? And I, I brought this to another one, another lecture as well. In the year that King Uzziah died, I beheld my Lord seated on the Lord, seated on a high and lofty throne, and his hems filled the temple. Isaiah is looking up. God is coming down on a throne to, right, to talk to Isaiah, right, coming down this way, right, because that is coming down. And the, the edge of his garment, the hem of his garment, filled the temple because Isaiah isn't supposed to look up under the kilt, shall we say, you know, of this Scotsman, right? Because we don't want Isaiah, we don't want anybody to ask Isaiah, what does God wear under his skirt, right? Because they're not wearing breeches yet at this point, because we know when breeches are invented and it's not at this point. This is 8th century uh, pants don't come in to the 
our part of the ancient world for another 200 years. Right? So again, we don't deal with this where they're hanging the you know, penis wind chimes in their house for divine protection. We are really not allowing us to see behind that curtain. We have these images again, this powerful image of the god. This is a herm, we discussed these on our first day together. This is a powerful image. This is an image that protects the city. But it also can be a humorous <laughs> image, right? Because whereas one is protective, this one is funny. And it's there for the mocking aspect of it, because the Greeks aren't above mocking their religious icons and attributes, where we would never do that. Right? But you all, this is a jar handle, um, and it's from a transport amphora, you know, so it's sort of like a brand. But you will notice this symbol that is stamped onto it, and that's a harm, and that's, that's sort of a, of a protection. Right? This, has been, you know, this has been checked. You break into this and you're going to get this sort of curse onto you. It's a protective amulet. Right? And again, these are just a couple of other ones. This one, this one is life-size and this would have been put out you know, on the, in the front of a house or on the street as a protective marker. This is a smaller one, about this big, that you would that you could have in your house, and this, of course, is a humorous um, vase. Now, as we have discussed, um, we often have stories in the Bible where nudity has to be assumed, but the text remains silent um, on the particular details, both of the sex and of the nudity. Right? Because that's not what is important to the particular storyline. This is among the earliest pieces of synagogue art that we have. It's from the synagogue at Dura Europis in Syria. It's dated to um, 244 CE. That's the last phase of the synagogue construction. The murals might, the frescoes might be somewhat earlier. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the synagogue mosaics at Beit Alpha, and you think of that as early synagogue art, but Beit Alpha is some 300 years later than this. Right? This is the finding of Moses. Right? Here's the little basket, here's the baby Moses, right? being given to Pharaoh's daughter, Right, as he's being fished out of the water. Whether or not that is Pharaoh's daughter or one of her girls is unclear. I would say it's probably one of the girls and Pharaoh's daughter is standing here, but it's not labeled, so it, you know, we don't know what it is exactly. But within the story in the Bible, right, Pharaoh's daughter is going down to the Nile to bathe. She's not wearing a bathing suit. She can't, but they didn't have, ba I mean, I can tell you they did not have bathing suits, right? But we don't think of, when you think of Pharaoh's daughter going down to the Nile to bathe, how many of you before any of our discussions this month would have thought of her in the altogether? We don't think of it that way, right? Because the story isn't going for those details. 
We don't think of it that way at all. And of course, we've discussed this any number of times. David is seeing Bathsheba bathing. Of course, I love, I have any number of pictures of this at the moment, right? She's, she's in a barrel, right? David, barrel, right, Bathsheba, right? Somebody bringing water, because that's important. You've got to bring water to the barrel, right? And she is, she is naked, right? This one's even in a better barrel. Now, why you would think that's the most beautiful woman in the world and actually, you know, force her to commit adultery, I don't know, but... <laughs> This is the Bible. I mean, they have different understandings of great beauty. And as we know, um, this being my favorite, because Bathsheba <laughs> is washing her feet. Because in olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking, right? But David sees Bathsheba bathing. Well, you can't put, this is an illustrated Bible. Can you put a naked lady in an illustrated Bible? You better not. <laughs> Right? But again, we don't think of it. The text is very, I want to say polite, right? Because that's, that's our value system onto it. The text is not making a value statement. The text says she's bathing. It's not saying she's bathing in her, you know, in her fur coat. She's bathing, of course she's naked. We are the ones who've taken that out in our own minds. Okay? And then, of course, we get to Song of Songs. I'm nearing the end of my slides, so those of us who are getting a little antsy. Right? Then, of course, we get to Song of Songs, where everything changes because it's poetry. And this is the demure lady at the window, one of the Nimrod ivories obviously found at Nimrod. And you can't figure out at all why I brought you this slide, can you? Nor can you identify these people. This is Sir Max Malowin. This is Sir Leonard Woolley. Many of you have heard of Leonard Woolley. He did all the excavations at Orr. And this is Max Malowin's wife. Okay, now this is a real trivia question. Does anybody know him? Who, if, Max Mellon was a very famous archaeologist. Anybody know who his more famous wife was? Dame Agatha Christie. Okay, so, and they of course found the Nimrod ivories, this one, right, and this one, right? So I had to bring you a picture of Agatha Christie. How, how could I not, right? But again, we, this says nothing about sex. Right? But it is associated, it's always associated with what we have with Song of Songs. Right? The Song of Songs by Solomon, Oh, give me of your kisses of your mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Your ointments yield a sweet fragrance. Your name is like the finest oil. Therefore do maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me to his chambers. Let us delight and rejoice in your love, savoring, savoring it more than wine, like the new wine they love you. Now, many of you have heard me say, and I'll say it again here, this is erotic poetry. We know that Song of Songs, just as parts of Proverbs, are patterned after Egyptian texts. Right? We spoke in the beginning of how Proverbs is patterned after, part of Proverbs 7, chapter 7, is patterned after the, um, the admonitions of Amenemopet, Song of Songs is also patterned after ancient Egyptian love poetry. Not every stanza in Song of Songs, 
comes from the love poetry that we have, but enough of it is so similar that there is no question that there's a direct correlation and a direct borrowing of this erotic love poetry. And it recognizes and celebrates the love of a man and a woman. Not the so-called platonic love, but the sexual, erotic, heart-pounding love of a man and a woman. Because it's poetry. And its purpose is to discuss that love. Its purpose isn't to move the narrative from one place to another. Its purpose is to celebrate the love and the union of a couple. Chapter four. Ah, you are fair, my darling. Ah, you are fair. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down the Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes climbing up behind a washing pool. I don't like these descriptions. Okay? All of them bear twins and not one loses her young. Your lips are like a crimson thread. Your mouth is lovely, much better. Your brow behind your veil gleams like a pomegranate split open. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built to hold weapons. Yes, my tongue. Hung with a thousand shields, your quiver of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, browsing among the lilies. <laughs> when the day blows gently, the shadows flee. I will betake me to the Mount of Myrrh, to the Hill of Frankincense. Every part of, your, every part of you is fair, my darling. There is no blemish in you. From, the Lebanon, you. from Lebanon, come with me. From Lebanon, my bride, with me. Trip down the, um, from Amman's peak, from the peak of Sinar, from Hamon, these are the different mountains. From the dens of lions, from the hills of leopards, you have captured my heart, my own, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one coil of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my own, my bride. How much more delightful your love than wine. Your ointments more fragrant than any spice. Isn't that nice? That's nice. The Bible understands and expects nudity, sex, and sexuality. Its approach to it and its appreciation of it is particular in the moment. As I keep saying, and I said it before, right, a bathing suit in Shabbat services is not the same as a bathing suit on the beach. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck. The upward hours is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. I'm singing in my head. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate a time of war, and a time of peace, and a time to say thank you. It's been a great month. Wow. <laughs>